0: Welcome to Intersect, Where Church Meets Culture. My name is Josh Dash, and I'm the lead pastor at Northeast Presbyterian Church in lovely Columbia, South Carolina, and I am joined by the copacetic Betsy.
1: Wow, I really don't know what that means. (laughs) It means... (laughs) Hi, everybody. The
0: the internet uh, says, in extremely good order... Oh. in copacetic just for today's topic, it felt like a you good... You think that fits? ...kind of clinical word.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a, it's a okay. good thing. It's
0: good All to right. be copacetic.
1: Okay, I'll take it.
0: And, uh, that's listen to our topic for today, a Christian perspective on mental health. Now, we have a subtitle for this episode, which is, Are Mental Health Professionals the New High Priests? And who better to do that with than with someone that we both have incredible respect for, Mm -hmm. Dr. Mo Hanna. Mo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely.
1: Yes, we are thrilled that you could join us again, Mo. As uh, listeners will remember, a couple seasons ago, Mm -hmm. we um, were able to talk with you on the topic of teen mental health, which was a great conversation, and I would recommend that anybody hop back a couple seasons ago and listen to that if you haven't heard it.
0: One of my favorite conversations, and I would strongly encourage, even if you did listen to the episode two years ago... I was just thinking to myself, I'm due to go back and listen to that episode again. For sure. And one thing I want to say about Mo is just how gospel-centered his approach to medicine and to adolescence and all of it is. So that was one of the best episodes we've had. And obviously, uh, it says something if we're bringing him back for round number two. And it says a lot about Mo that he would come back.
1: Right. <laughs> for sure.
0: So, uh, Mo, we're so thankful for you Uh, Mo is child and adolescent psychiatrist. Hope I said that right in private practice in New Jersey. And Mo, would you like to just say anything about your clinical experience and background?
2: Yeah, I was going to say that I am a child adolescent psychiatrist, but you beat me to it. So, uh, I've been doing this for 20 plus years. Wow. So I think I'm starting my 21st year in practice.
0: Wow. That's great.
1: So, um, wow. You've seen a lot. Yes. Yes. Yes, Yes, Mm
0: -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yep, and Mo won't brag about himself, but he uh, leads a thriving practice, um, and he is a voice in his field, Mm -hmm. a highly, highly respected voice. And so, again, what better person uh, for us to go to, and and someone that I respect deeply in his professional life, and also someone who we both respect so deeply in his personal life, Mm -hmm. his family, his walk with Christ. And so, Mo, I want to present a theory to you. Uh, Betsy's not fully persuaded, but I think this is going to be a fun conversation. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think and, it will too. And
0: it's really a question, okay? Mm-hmm. And so let me let me set up the conversation this way. Throughout human history, every society has had holy men or women, spiritual leaders. You could go to indigenous cultures. You could go to uh, different cultures with different religions. Obviously, in places that have a Christian background, you have pastors, you have priests you have spiritual leaders. And a few years ago, a very important book came out by a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. Betsy, you know what I'm going to say, and so does Mo. For sure. The name of the book is A Secular Age. And what Dr. Charles Taylor argues is that we have entered into a fully sort of demystified, disenchanted is his, what a wonderful word, Mm -hmm. uh, word that he uses to say that we've sort, we've de-spiritualized the world. Uh, Why have we done that? Well, of course we've done that because we've exalted science and the material world above everything else. And so now the default among at least the elites in our culture, certainly on our camp, on our college campuses and the media and so forth, is that the only thing that's really real is the material. And so, an interesting thought that I've had. And Mo, I think we maybe even have had some conversations around this topic. But now that we are living in a secular age, who fills the void for the spiritual leadership that has always been present in every society? And of course, we're going to argue that that's there because we're made in God's image. And as the Bible says, he's put eternity on the hearts of everyone. So everyone has this spiritual impulse within them. It's got to be met somehow. It's got to be explored somehow. And that in this secular age, I wonder, Dr. Hannah, have mental health professionals sort of become our new de facto high priests? They're the ones that we now look to. To in a lot of ways, maybe not in every way, but in a lot of ways to explain the world and maybe actually to give us even some identity. So am I totally wrong? If so, this could be the shortest podcast ever. <laughs> am I on to anything here, Mo? Dr. Hannah, uh, give us your thoughts on uh, both living in this secular age as well as somebody who's from the inside about the role that mental health professionals like psychiatrists, like therapists, like counselors now play in our society. So if I say no, I can just go have lunch, right?
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> you can hang out. <laughs> yes. The you
2: other, can. the other risk I take by answering his question is do I side with Josh versus Betsy? So this mm. is a little bit of a dangerous yeah. answer. Well, I always
1: pick Betsy. I think for me, my question was more about the metaphor, um, by high priest specifically, what's the intention behind? Do you want to explain that a little bit, Josh?
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to go specifically through the lens of diagnoses. So the power that a mental health professional now has to give a diagnosis, is that similar to a priest distributing communion or or a hmm. priest giving confession? Is there something that's almost become supernatural about uh, the power of giving diagnoses. And one thing, you know, I was listening to what prompted this whole episode of my mind is I was listening to two psychiatrists on another podcast talk about their profession. And they basically had a moment where they admitted where they were basically saying, look, we do our best in this, but it's not like we speak for God Hmm. when we say to a person, hey, this is what you're dealing with. This is the steps that you should take. So that was kind of the lens through which I was mm-hmm. wanting to explore yeah. this topic.
2: Yeah. For a lot of people, the label is very powerful because it helps them to make sense of what their struggle is. And their struggle is not being defined as sin, right? Mm-hmm. It's being defined as emotional challenges, struggles, um and that's the primary reason people go to psychiatrists, right? Is to get some sort of diagnostic confirmation or some diagnostic clarification of what's wrong with me.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And so the psychiatrist says, Hey, I think you've got bipolar disorder. You're like, Oh, okay. This is why I do X, Y, and Z. And so then what do we do about that? Well, if you have bipolar disorder, you need treatment. Right? It's not a sin issue that needs repentance. It's a medical diagnosis that needs some sort of therapeutic treatment, either medications and or therapy. Mm-hmm. So that's a nice, tidy explanation, right? It, it kind of makes sense. The doctor says, this is what I have. I have a problem and I need it to be fixed, right? And so that, that's a nice, tidy way of thinking about the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very attractive, right? Because, it, because it's, it's, um, it's a neat way of thinking about my problem. And if I could just find the right medicine or the right tools or the right therapeutic intervention, then I will get well.
0: Hmm. And how do you think that's working out for our society? I mean, it, is that sufficient? And from your observation from the ground, how's this working for the vast majority of people who seek uh, treatment? You, you know, I think
2: for a number of people, it, it's it's probably working quite well. Um, oh. I, I was telling somebody recently that patients wouldn't keep coming back or keep taking medications if they were not helping them in some way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So so clearly for some people, they're doing well, but, but they're doing well from a psychiatric perspective. So I, I think that picking back on your question, Josh, it's more, well, what is that, what does it mean to do well? Because as Christians, mm-hmm. we think very differently of the definition of doing well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What they're looking for is emotional stability, to not be sad, to not be mad, to not be worried or nervous.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So from their perspective, this is great. I'm not anxious anymore. I'm not depressed anymore. I'm functioning pretty well. Those are the criteria of how they're defining well. And and by the way, those are not bad things. Yeah, sure. Right. It's just yep. as Christians, we think through a totally different lens of what it means to do well.
1: Hmm.
0: So um let so let's let's keep going down this road here. So, well, I mean, and Mo, do you feel like I, I wanna just go back to that. Di- I want to hear more about what it means to do well from a biblical standpoint, because I, I think I think we've op- we've opened up an interesting uh, uh, door here on to, on a discussion on how do we define wellness. Because one of the things Betsy and I t- talk about a lot is how often we're catechized by the world and not by the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear about how easy it is for Christians to. Uh, go to the uh, world's definition of what it means to be doing well. But again, I'm also, I'm also still interested in this, uh, the power of a diagnosis. Um, do you think that uh, in our culture, a diagnosis has something like an infallible feel to it? Um, and can you tell us a little bit about how that might help provide some sense of, well, let me ask you, do you think it provides some sense of identity? Even if it's in a negative way, you're still, um, seeing yourself through a certain lens.
2: I think for some people it does, but I'm also running into younger people who are very wary of the diagnosis and the label. Hmm. They, they look at the diagnosis and the label as, um, you know, coming from some sort of authority as someone sitting in judgment over them mm. and that they're rejecting that type of thinking. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see a generational divide where people want to understand what's wrong with them, but don't necessarily like the label part. But then there's other people who they catch on to the label. Oh, I am on the autistic spectrum. This is why I do this or not do that. And this is why I struggle. And, and, and that can be helpful. There's, there's certainly a benefit to the explanation. But notice that as we're talking about these things, there's really nothing spiritual that we're talking about. Mm. As we've become more secular, our entire conversation is rooted in secular terminology, secular expectations, secular definitions, secular terms. So I think the concern a lot of times I have is when Christians fall into that trap.
1: Mm. Mm.
2: Where our biblical language is not used, we're not seeing things through a biblical lens to try to even make sense of the diagnosis, right? If you are a biblical Christian, how do you make sense of being told, "Hey, you have bipolar disorder"?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How do you make sense of the fact that you struggle with depression?
0: Hmm. Hmm. Wow. That's that's great. So so bringing that biblical worldview. To the diagnosis, and and Mo, would you say that in your experience? Because I'm sure that you see uh, Christians, non Christians, uh, everything mm-hmm. in between. You and your fellow clinicians, do you see uh, an issue with Christians not going beyond that label and not applying that biblical worldview? Because again, what what started the whole topic for me is the reality of just living in this secular age. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that the younger generation maybe doesn't want labels because that connects to the whole no one can tell me who I am mm-hmm. and no one can define me. Only the inner voice inside of me can define who I am, which is kind of an interesting maybe almost reaction against a sort of hardened scientific uh, you know, culture.
1: Yeah, I feel like I, I've seen um, the term gatekeepers – yeah, that's used interesting. for, you know, medical professionals who are signing off on something or, you know, giving a label to something, you know, gatekeeper used in a negative way. I, I don't know if that's something that you've encountered, Mel. I have,
2: especially with younger people. And mm-hmm. a lot of kids, you know, and when I say kids, including college kids, there's a little bit of resentment that they need this label to, whether to get services or to even sometimes go back to school uh, because it comes across as someone sitting in judgment over them. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I, I think people who are older don't necessarily have a problem with the idea of a diagnosis and some sort of label um, but but it's really interesting to see um, and when, you know again younger older teens, college students, young adults mm.
1: Mm.
0: so uh and, and to go to keep going down the, you know, you work with a lot of younger people. What would you say? I mean, we asked you this two, three years ago, but it's, you know, it's been a good amount of time now. How is the landscape, in your opinion, you've been in practice for two decades. How are young people doing on mental health? Are they knocking it out of the park right now? Is this the, <laughs> is this the healthiest generation of teenagers in the history of the world, Mo? I mean, um, that's uh, that's like that's like a layup, right? You know, just it's <laughs> like batting practice. You just threw the
2: fastball. You know, let's go with the baseball analogy. Yep. Um,
1: we have two teenagers of our own now, so we. Well, uh, I've got yeah. I've got
2: three, so oh man, I, I win.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me let
2: me let me say this because this tells you uh, kind of a big picture macro perspective. There's billions of dollars being invested by companies and businesses in mental health. Yes. This is one of the major growth industries globally. Mm. Venture capital, um, you know, startups, entrepreneurs, big tech, they're investing a tremendous amount of money in mental health. And I'm sure some of them, you know, want to help, but there's a lot of money to be made because there are so many who are struggling. Mm. So that tells you something. Mm. The needs are tremendous. In, in certain areas of the country, it is very hard to even get a therapist or a counselor. Very hard to find a psychiatrist. Because there are so many kids who are struggling. Mm. Um, and, and I think a lot of people who work in schools know this. People, front lines, pediatricians, primary care. The, the system is actually overwhelmed.
0: Wow.
2: So uh, so the number of people, kids, teens, college students, young adults who are struggling is extremely large. It continues to grow every single day.
0: So is it worse than three years ago? Is it worse than, in your opinion? I mean, I know this is unscientific. I, I think it's
2: hard to know yep. whether it's worse because this has been progressively getting more and more over several decades. Mm. Um, and it's, so it's hard to pinpoint whether it's really worse or not. Um, I'm sure people who've done, you know, numbers could look at the differences, a bit. but if you think big picture, most practices are extremely busy and their biggest challenge is not
0: finding patients, but hiring clinicians.
1: Mm.
0: Wow. It seems, Bets. I don't know what your experiences have been with, with this and Mo, but I feel like I can't listen to any podcast today without hearing an advertisement from BetterHelp, I oh, think yeah. is one. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Or oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or there's all of these now. I, I, I think I can listen to NBA, cooking, doesn't matter what I'm listening to. I'm told, hey, you're struggling with your mental health. And obviously, all this stuff is online. That just seems like that's exploded. Is that what you're seeing too? That, that is accurate.
2: Yes. Yeah. If you listen to sports radio, watch sporting events, watching any anything or any podcast, those are becoming the standard sponsors of many different things.
1: Mm. And I think in some ways, um, you know, that it, it's, a, it's a good thing that we're acknowledging that people aren't okay, you know, um, and saying people need to get help. It just seems like the volume is, it's crazy.
0: Yeah, and I, I, Mo, I want to get your opinion on this. I feel like every time uh, there's any kind of critique brought on to the mental health the state of mental health in America, one of the things I frequently hear, uh, and this is also something that is hurt, that I also hear about LGBTQ plus in terms of like percentages. Uh, what I frequently hear is, well, th- this has always been present. It's just now we diagnose so much more, so much more accurately. So there, there's always been uh, X percentage of people that have this or this or that or identify this way or that way. And it's just today that we're recognizing that. And so therefore things aren't any worse. We're just doing a better job. I'm sure there's some truth in that, but how much weight do you give that Mo versus no, it's people are actually struggling a lot worse than I think than they were in the past.
2: Yeah. I think people have always struggled. However, the way they did life in the culture that they inhabited Mm. provided a scaffolding and supports that are no longer there. Mm. So as a result, we're, we live in an extremely individualistic culture, right? Yes. There is more yes. one-person household in the United States than there ever has been in history. We know mm. that living with other people, being part of a family within itself is protective, and um, living in isolation is generally not good for us. Um, And most statistics will bear that out in terms of rates of depression and anxiety. So clearly the way we do life um, contributes to that. I also think culture and conversations in culture do influence um, some of these diagnoses and some of people's perceptions of them. The reality is, yes, there's always been people who've been depressed and anxious. However, just because you have a predisposition towards depression and anxiety does not mean you're going to get depressed and you're going to get anxious. Yeah, The way you do life, the where you do life, the what you value in life will, will have a significant impact on whether that ans- predisposition towards anxiety or depression actually shows up and if so, to what degree.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you um, bring that up, Mo. Josh and I have talked about How this all came up because my parents sent a video from, I don't know, it had to be like 1990. It was, somebody dug this up on YouTube. It was from my church as a kid. And my church as a kid did this Christmas concert every year. It was huge. So the interesting thing was, you know, you loved the '90s haircuts. You loved the he- all the different glasses. It was hilarious clothing, to watch. Everything. <laughs> it was so funny to watch. But point being, this Christmas concert was absolutely massive. There were probably Packed There out. were probably 200 people singing, and when you think about the lead up to this Christmas concert, it it required months of practice. It required um, showing up a lot and rehearsing together. And Josh and I were just talking about how I feel like those kind of communal experiences where you experience so much joy, so much togetherness, um, so much identifying with each other, I feel like those kind of experiences have eroded so significantly. Um, And as you've said, we've become much more individualistic, much more, you know, watching Netflix at home on the couch. And I do see that. You know, erosion of just a general sense of community, not even talking about the church. Yeah, Yeah. the church or even the individual family, Mm -hmm. but just less of a community identity. I I feel like we can see that.
2: But people are still looking for communities. They Mm -hmm. go to concerts, they go to sporting events. You know, you look at any college football. Yeah. Game yeah. or MLB or NFL, people are tailgating for hours. People are desperate for community, mm-hmm. and so they're resorting to the secular version, right? Sporting yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. events right. and experiences, whether music concerts or uh, sports, are fill that gap. Mm. They fill that void.
1: Mm. Mm.
0: Yep. And it's interesting. You know, I didn't intend this conversation to go to the church, but as a pastor, one of the things I wrestle with is the blessings and challenges of technology that, hey, this podcast are, that we're doing, this is amazing. And we do a live stream uh, on Sunday morning, just like every church in America now does. I think even the smallest churches have an iPhone set up in the back of the room <laughs> and the biggest churches have incredible production. But one of the things, you know, that I wrestle with as a pastor is the live stream is such a blessing to people who are sick and traveling and who that's that's what they need. It, it enables them to connect but there's also that huge burden on my heart of there's just something different when you step into the room with your church family and you experience those embodied relationships. And it's, it's just interesting um, how, again, we're talking about being catechized by the culture, the secularity uh, that Christians can easily fall into. Um, it's been very easy. I wonder, I wonder how much we've missed just the pure relational, psychological, emotional health benefits of just being together. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think the smartphones and um, just the nature of technology is so isolating. So this is where a lot of kids are home over the weekends. They're not getting together with any friends at all. Mm. Um, And if they are communicating with friends, it will be for boys' video games, right? They'll play video games together online, or the girls will just be um, you know, social media or chatting in some capacity Mm. without physically ever getting together.
1: Mm.
2: Wow. One of the questions I ask a lot of my patients is how often they get together with friends outside of school, outside of structured activities. It's pretty rare, Mm. right? Outside Mm -hmm. of a sports or some sort of event, um, there's very little for, for at least for, some of my patients, very little actual interactions with peers in unstructured settings,
1: hmm.
2: especially for boys, by the way.
1: Interesting.
0: Now, Mo, I can just hear in the back of my head uh, many parents, and I can even hear my own as a parent of four children, this narrative of, but we but we have no choice in this. This is a tidal wave. Come on. I mean, what am I supposed to stand there and hold my hand up and hold the wave back there's nothing we can do, um, you know, what, what's your answer? And I'm sure you hear this in your practice of, well, we've just got to accommodate. We've got to change. We've got to get with it. I mean, we can't, you can't turn back time, as Cher told us, if I could turn back if time. Turn. Sorry. Underrated song. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we can't, we can't do that. So why don't we just deal with it? Why don't we just accept it? Why don't we just do the best we can with it? I want to hear your response to that line of thinking as a Christian mental health professional.
2: I think that we always, for whatever reason, assume that what the culture tells us is just the way it is. Hmm. And so then we're always reactive. And I think especially as Christians, we tend to be very reactive to the culture and we let the culture dictate the terms of the conversation. Hmm. And so we assume that, they are just going to have smartphones. That's just, that's just the way it is. Um, and this is true probably for most Christians or that we're going to do, you know, sports training to the same extent as everyone else. As parents, ultimately we are stewards of our children and we are the ones responsible before the Lord in terms of what happens. So I, I don't like that whole idea of saying that's just the way it is because you can be intentionally and deliberately make certain choices as a family that might be countercultural that your children will not like, but that will still be in the best interest of your child. I mean, smartphones to me are always the, the obvious one in terms of the age. People debate ad nauseum, what age is it okay to give the child a smartphone? But even if they have a smartphone, you could still have some level of control over it. Mm. Um, We're not helpless victims as parents, right? We need to be the authority. We need to be the ones that are advocating and protecting our children.
0: Amen. Mo, uh, it's fine if you don't want to give a number because this this might be in the vault only for your patients. Do you have a number that you say right now in age? Give your child a smartphone at this age? Do you have currently have a number?
2: I, I don't have a number, but I can tell you from our personal experience, that number tends to be post-middle school,
1: mm-hmm.
2: at least for the three teenagers in my home.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great encouragement, Mo, to because I think so often I know that for Josh and me, um, it is so easy to feel like, oh, what can I do about this? It's just an onslaught of constant you know, constant, all of these choices that we have to make as parents and how to, um, how to set up boundaries, how to set up limits, you know, it's these it, it just feels constant. I think that's a great reminder that, hey, we're not victims here. Mm-hmm. We can do things even if it makes our kids upset. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's great encouragement. And that
0: connects to the mental health discussion that we started with here because we're also not victims with our mental health. And, and I love what you said, Mo, about how, yes, we can be predisposed to things, but then sort of the, way, the degree to which those things manifest in our lives it, it is connected to a lot of things, the decisions we make, the environment we, we grow up in. And, of course, as Christians, we would say the exact same thing with sin, not just with mental health conditions, that all of us are predisposed towards certain sins I think if you're going to make a biblical argument for that, I think you talk about generational sin, which the scriptures talk about very clearly. We can be predisposed towards certain sin struggles, but I don't think it's a good method to our Christian life to say, well, then I'm just therefore uh, doomed to fall into these traps that I'm predisposed toward, but rather we are called to actively through the work of the spirit uh, put to death these things that God doesn't want for us. So, you know, there's also connections, I think, to be made both to our spiritual life.
2: It's the exact same thing. That is correct, right? Just because there's a predisposition does not mean this is who I am. Hmm.
1: Hmm.
2: Because I think that's a very common thing in our culture, and especially with mental health. That's my ADHD. That's my depression. That's my anxiety. Well, it's because I'm autistic, right? And that somehow this is who I am, and I'm defined by that. But I agree with what you said about sin. A predisposition towards sin is not licensed to, to commit that sin. Because mm-hmm. if we mm-hmm. believe in the power of the gospel and we believe that the Holy Spirit truly can genuinely transform our hearts and our predispositions and our inclinations, um, then the, the natural answer is yes, I can change, not because I'm going to do it with my own strength, but because of who God is and His power.
0: Hmm. Wow. So, well, we're we're I have and I have a few more uh, strings I want to pull on here before we end. But I am curious to know if we've answered this question: Are mental health professionals the new high priests? Maybe they are maybe they are in some ways. In some ways, they're not. Um, I think we can say for many people. They play an equivalent
2: role, an, equi- an equivalent role as an authority, as somebody who speaks into someone's life of significance that they trust, mm. Mm. someone who is providing, helping them make sense of what life is about and meaning of their experience of um, how to navigate through life. So, so therapists for many people play a significant role.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mo, do you think that many Christians are too quick to go down the road of a pure secular therapy? And I know by saying this, you wouldn't be criticizing things like CBT and the things that secular therapists do, but do you think that Christians can be too quick to go down that path um, and, and sort of leave their, their faith at home, That forget to pack their faith with them when they leave the house? I think in certain churches,
2: that can be true. In other churches, there's an extreme resistance to actually getting help.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm.
2: So I kind of, I I get to see both. What concerns me a lot of times is when believers will take their children or themselves to somebody who will speak uh, secular truth to them, their version of the secular gospel, counteracting the true gospel and that can have a very significant impact. So that concerns me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me ask, I have one other question that I, I'm wondering if you've seen this. Um, you hear more and more about, especially young people going online. I think YouTube is a very common uh, place that this happens. And a young boy or girl, young man or woman will uh, find a channel that someone mm-hmm. is putting out content And they almost, I don't want to say are converted. I don't want to use language that's excessive here, but it's almost like they find this thing that they hear online. And then you hear stories about a person saying, well, that's who I am. I've now discovered my identity. This explains everything for me. I'm curious, are you seeing that? Are you seeing people go online and perhaps in unhealthy ways um, find voices that then explain reality for them. And then for those people that becomes their reality. Sure. There, there are plenty of kids who are struggling and
2: they're struggling with who they are in terms of trying to make sense of some of it, by the way, they're, they're struggling with normal developmental confusion, Mm. Mm. right? Typical, just growing up, trying to figure out who they are and what they're about. And they're in their search. They're not necessarily talking to someone in their home or a parent. And they go online because that's easy. And they search and search. And they'll listen to a voice that will sound credible, sounds authoritative, will make sense to them, and they'll gravitate towards that. I see this especially with, with kids who have a hard time with, um, with social relationships, kids who are socially disconnected, kids who are being socially rejected, kids who are really socially anxious, mm. who are not the most popular kids at school, who are struggling in some social capacity. And they're trying to find a group where they feel connected to. And so they start searching for, if I'm struggling socially, what does this mean about me? Or if I'm struggling with who I am. And there's plenty of videos out there and plenty of material that will try to guide them to go down a certain direction, um, to try to make sense of who they are. This is especially true for kids who are on the autistic spectrum, Mm. who who will struggle socially and will not fit neatly into any peer group.
0: Mm. Mm. Mo, this, you've, you really enlightened us with the state of things and what you're seeing. And I guess my last question for you before Betsy has a final question in the episode is what are, I know we, we've been all over the place here, but what are some big takeaways for Christians, right? Um, we are, we know the Bible says we're pilgrims in this land. Our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. So we, we're going to find ourselves in a culture wherever we live that is not going to conform perfectly to what God desires as we live in a broken world. But do you have any big takeaways for Christians, uh, both parents, both ourselves personally, as we've talked about these different areas, things like we've talked about diagnoses, we've talked about things that people see online. What, what are some of the takeaways that you bring to this conversation specifically as a, as a Christian clinician?
2: Struggles emotionally don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a certain contexts, And I think it is the role of mom and dad, um, parents in general, to be aware of the secular voices that are out there that are trying to form and shape your children.
1: Mm. So Mm.
2: I think I can't emphasize this enough that those secular voices are very powerful
1: Mm.
2: and they're an alternative gospel, right? With what the problem is and what the solution is. Can you talk about that a
1: little more, Mo? Can you talk about what in that secular framework, what's the problem and what's the solution that you're seeing?
2: Yeah, I mean, the secular framework says the problem is is that um, if you don't feel good, you should have the right to feel good at all times, that mm-hmm. you should be comfortable at all times with who you are, and that you, you know, from an expressive individualism, you are the one who determines who you are as a person, right? There's, there's no God, there's no authority. And so every voice is telling kids, be who you are yeah. it's, and that you should get to decide and define what that is. Hmm. Um, and I would even say, you know, if, if for someone who doesn't necessarily you know, follow our Christian faith, I would, I would encourage him to recognize this is not good. This is not good for yes. your child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This isn't good for anybody, whether they're a Christian or not, this is not necessarily even a Christian issue. Uh,
0: I want to hear right? you say a little bit more about that. Why? Why is it not – What uh, somebody listens to this podcast, they're a total non-Christian, and they say, um, why can't my child just – shouldn't they listen to that inner voice and go be the version of themselves that they feel that they should be? Why is that bad? Sure, because, because most kids
2: are kids. In other words, they don't have it all figured out, and their emotions change from moment to moment right? You wake up one day, you don't feel good about yourself, and then you're going to start evaluating things through that lens. Or you're insecure because a friend said something to you or texted you something. Next thing you know, you're trying to evaluate things through that lens. Emotions change. They wax and wane. Normal developmental insecurities are there. And so, to try to be the one, your own authority, when you yourself are confused and don't know big picture life Mm -hmm. is 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 nonsensical Mm. Mm. right you're you're where you're trying to be your own authority and i think the other challenge is for kids who struggle with anxiety and depression that's a distorting lens they're not even seeing things accurately
0: Mm. yeah so just and you know the way i've thought about it is um, first of all, we think that self-definition is liberation, but to me, it's actually so restricting. It's so much more free if I'm getting my identity outside of myself. And as believers, we find that in Christ. We find that in the gospel. We find that in God's word. But to me, I always feel this great irony of uh, we're telling people what freedom is, but it's actually the most uh, pressure-filled... Right cage that you could possibly because w- what if you get it wrong what if you think you're this but you're that it, to me it seems like there's tremendous uh pressure in that
2: mm-hmm. and it changes mm-hmm. right so the way you think as an 8-year-old is going to be different when you're 10 or when you're 16 or 20 and you know 25 so
1: which is hopefully a good thing <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing yeah, I think, um, you know, as we've spoken about before, Mo, that is the message of every Disney movie, which, you know, you uh, find your – be true to yourself. Don't let anybody tell you that, you know, you're wrong about anything. Um, make make sure you're living authentically. And I think you're – it's just so wise to remind parents and, and grandparents and even just as um, for ourselves that that is the message that our culture is preaching nonstop – through so many different ways, and if we don't speak more loudly than that in our kids' lives, that is what they're going to hear. Um, are there any other emphases that you that you want to see parents and grandparents and other people who love kids and teens give to those give to their kids and teens?
2: Yeah, this is specifically for Christian parents. I, I think the amount of time your children do spend in church and with other believers matters. Mm. I think going to church on a Sunday morning is great. It's important to go to worship. But one of the things I do notice that the less a teen, especially teens, middle school, high school is engaged with the rhythms of church community where church is really about going to check off the box on Sunday morning with no other involvement that most likely that teen post high school will unfortunately probably not be going to church anywhere or it will at least I know I think you guys have spoken as this before is, is the kind who might at some point quote unquote deconstruct their faith, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. When mm-hmm. reality is they really never had the faith.
1: Mm. Mm. Mm.
2: So I think that involvement in community with other believers, same age and older, I think is extremely formative and important for Christian.
1: Yeah, that's great. Amen.
0: Faith formation. Mm-hmm. Let that process happen with others.
1: Josh loves that plug you just gave church mo <laughs>
0: <laughs> be involved. Well we say, you know, at, at our church, Northeast Presbyterian Church, one of our mantras is that we seek to share life together. Mm-hmm. And sharing life together has to mean more than one hour or, you know, 70 minutes, however long your worship service is. That's right. It's got to be more. Th- I mean, that's, yeah. I always say it's, that's it's the foundation. Plug.
2: It's a plug, but... I guess, for youth groups as well. That's right.
1: Yep. That's right. Mm. Yep. Yep. Well, um, Mo, you, you know the question that we like to, to ask any guest who comes on this podcast, and that is always, what are you reading?
2: Um, I'm actually reading the book by Nancy Piercy. The toxic war on masculinity.
1: Mm. Oh, is that it new? Is, that is,
2: it is fairly new. It actually just came out.
1: Wow. So, is that a so, book that so far you would recommend?
2: I would. I would. I, I I think it's a very thoughtful book on how we've arrived at this current moment where um, being a guy is a bad thing mm-hmm. in our culture, or mm-hmm. you know, the the whole idea of being masculine is being challenged as toxic so she's playing off that word right And that's where she's calling it a toxic war on masculinity that somehow that this is good for women and her, she's making the case that uh no this is not in anyone's benefit to be attacking men
1: hmm.
0: yeah
2: i'm not done with the book so.
1: well i read one of hers several years ago and i can't remember what it was now but it was something about body Um, something love thy body
0: was her. Yes.
1: Yes. That was a very good book. I learned a lot from that book. So she's, she's a good thinker and author.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Jordan Peterson, yes or no? (laughs) Uh, You know, I've never read anything by him. I do think, I I think he's hitting on something, right? He's that's exactly it. He's scratching an
2: edge. He's he's hitting on something and, um aaron wren i don't know if you're familiar with him but he talks a lot about the jordan peterson phenomenon aaron wren talks a lot about men issues and masculinity and his point is that the church has not stepped up to the plate in helping men understand what the role is in the church and why the church is the right place for them and that jordan peterson is kind of filling the gaps
0: Wow. Interesting. Wow. Can we yeah. keep you for another hour on Men in yeah. the Church? We can't. That's we can't. our next episode. That's right. <laughs> Dr. Mohana, we are so thankful for you, for your life, for your family, for how many people you help, Christian and non-Christian, through your practice and through the clinicians who work for you. Thanks so much for coming on Intersect. My pleasure.
1: Uh, it was a great conversation, Mo. And thanks, everybody, for listening today. Uh, If you are on any of those major podcasting apps, that's where you can find us. You can like, review, and subscribe.
0: We'll see you next time, everybody.